Insofar as black-white relations are concerned, it is the whites who hold the power of crucial decision, which is to say not that the blacks are powerless, but that they are much less powerful. They may take decisions, yet they are unlikely to be able to enforce them against the superior power of the whites. The predominant term in the whole conflict is white power. It would be silly to suppose, however, that this either implies or prescribes black impotence. For this is clearly not the case. In any civil struggle between the two groups, on whatever level it is waged, while the whites, without the slightest question, will be the victors, the blacks are in a position to do incalculable damage. But this presupposes a struggle in which the two sides are more or less starkly defined. The blacks generically on one side, the whites on the other. This, however, is not likely to be the case. In the actual event, there would be no such simple division of the contending parties. It is not even certain that the blacks as a group would come together in a solid alliance, unbroken in its ranks, undivided in its opposition to the whites. Nor is it certain that the latter themselves would achieve complete cohesion. Indeed, it is far from fanciful to assume that there would be blacks fighting on the side of the whites and whites on the side of the blacks. To be sure, the racial struggle in America is, in a primary sense, one in which blacks are pitted against whites. There are, however, other levels of emotional loyalty and intellectual conviction that combine to make skin color, in some instances, a treasonous uniform. As intermarriage between the two groups increases, it will become so much the more difficult to predict with certainty the side of the barricades on which a black or a white will fight. Such a conflict, if it should come to that, would split families, black and white, into mutually destructive factions. It would be a war of brother against brother and sister against sister, children against parents and parents against each other. At this very moment, the course of social evolution in this country already makes it impossible to distinguish with assurance over a considerable range of the population exactly who are white and who are black. The late senator and sometime governor of the state of Louisiana, Huey Long, is reported to have said of his state that he could take a single loaf of bread and feed all the genuinely white people in it. A similar statement might be made with equal accuracy about a significant number of other segments of the population of the United States.
Precisely how in this vast centuries-long admixture individuals will react when forced to choose sides is a matter which not even they themselves can predict with invariable certainty. Their conscious inclination may be contradicted by subconscious predisposition. In some cases, they may be paralyzed in their effort to decide. Still others may choose against the grain of their actual sympathy, seeking instead what they may conceive to be their true self-interest. And there will be others too, who evading the compulsion of choices that they cannot make, are swept up and eddied along on the current of the swifter stream, the more powerful cataract, the mightier wave, or simply the trend in their immediate vicinity. For many, it will be a monstrous nightmare of involuntary choice. For most, however, and this is the prospect to be confronted, the choice will have already been made by the arbitrament of skin color. It seems odd that a civilization not wholly lacking in the cultural ingredients of greatness should be menaced in its existence by so trivial a circumstance as the light or dark of human skin. Yet this is where the matter stands at present. The reason or unreason of choice or inability to choose in the contemplated event is, however, not exhausted by the consequences flowing from racial admixture. There is the element of class interest. This is, of course, one of the classic tools of Marxist historical analysis. But it is not necessary to regard it, as Marxists do, as a magic key to the secrets of the universe in order to realize that within its conceptual and practical limitations, it can yield illuminating results. The thesis that people tend in general to be bound together by an identity of economic interest is clearly demonstrable. But that they will act invariably in consonance with their economic interest is much less certain. Human behavior, a good deal of the time, is a paradox. As a whole, people are rather more creatures of appetite than devotees of reason, capricious rather than rational. Karl Marx, when drunk, sometimes attempted to climb lampposts at Highgate in North London, where he resided. This was not a reasonable thing to do. Since he was an economic theorist and a political analyst and not a lamplighter. It was merely a drunken caprice that he tried to do much the same sort of thing with his theory of class conflict. A useful insight was perverted theoretically and strained pragmatically by its application to circumstances well beyond the range of its relevancy. It fossilized into dogma and became an article of faith of the Marxist persuasion. In less doctrinaire hands, 
it might have been developed instead into a dialectical instrument free of political tendentiousness, superbly adapted to the search for the enshrouded sources of human motivation. Even now, despite all the accretions of mystique, it still remains an insight of immense value into the dynamics of human activity. If only Marx had not been so deficient in his knowledge of psychology, or so unimaginative in his use of it as a social scientist, the theory of class conflict might indeed have come to fruition as a cardinal enterprise of the human intellect. Yet there are, in fact, those occasions when men and women do combine on the basis of some interest which they identify as common to themselves exclusively and as having that order of value in which the sum is greater than the parts, hence their class interest. Human psychology is a largely uncharted realm of the irrational. Here, the unpredictable is sovereign. This fact alone makes arrant nonsense of the materialistic view of history in its doctrinaire extension to the whole range of human behavior. Yet, the assumption of class interest remains tenable in certain circumstances. One such may come to be the identity of economic interest on a class basis between the black and white segments of the American society. The signs are already visible in the case of the black and white middle class. This is the meaning of the black middle class drive for integration and its support and acceptance by the liberal vanguard of the white middle class. These two subcultures have identified as between themselves a coincidence of class interest. They earn comparably the same incomes, wear uniformly the same clothes, live quietly or conspicuously in the same type of housing, send their children to the same schools, interchange visits to each other's homes for social purposes, wrestle with the same order of mortgage indebtedness and experience the same frustrations with the servant shortage. They are, in fact, a single class differentiated superficially by the sole incidence of skin color. But the movement towards black separatism, as opposed to integration, is gathering momentum, and the likelihood is that its pace will become more rapid during the next decade. Disenchantment with white America is deepening throughout black America, and the store of faith in the national profession of equal opportunity for all dwindles near disappearance. In these circumstances, integration has not flourished, and granted their continuance, is unlikely to do so. For it is at this time, and it will be for all the foreseeable future, no longer simply a question of what white America wants, what black America wishes will have to be taken equally into account. And what black America wishes now and will continue to demand 
during the next decades is black separatism on self-respecting terms rather than integration on humiliating conditions such as the black middle class in its undignified craving for white acceptance conceded with a complacency that was contemptible. Integration without economic opportunity, and I mean equal economic opportunity, is a mockery. And equal economic opportunity cannot be achieved without equal education. This latter term, education, being defined not merely as what happens in a place called school, but also what happens in the place called home. In other words, housing and its attendant circumstances. The central problem is how to secure black control of decent housing, black control of adequate education, and black control of remunerative jobs for themselves. It should not be impossible or even inordinately difficult for America to solve this problem. If it does not, if it will not, if it cannot, then the future of America will be a revolutionary chaos, seesawing violently from repression to anarchy to national extinction. At the heart of this problem is the black demand for equal, or at any rate, proportionate control of the resources of American society on all of the various levels, in particular, as just noted, housing, education, and jobs. It is plainly evident, and he who runs may read, that the conditions in which the preponderating mass of black people live in America contain all the classic ingredients of revolution. The marvel is that black people have on the whole been so enduring. Whether they will continue to exercise this unparalleled restraint, if it is not imposed upon them by official repression, is the question for the future. Growing numbers of blacks are moving from constitutional protest to extra-constitutional activity. To construe this as a marginal development, an aberration restricted to the fringes of the black group, would be a serious delusion. On the other hand, to see it as smoke rising from a house completely on fire would be a wild exaggeration. It can, and indeed must, however, be regarded as a portent of far worse things to come unless white America mends its ways. The established practice in the past was to place the onus upon the blacks to be patient. The whites, as lords and masters of the land, never felt called upon to consider with sustained care and attention the precise circumstances in which the blacks were expected to be patient. Blacks were ruled by fear. The future may bring a recurrence of this type of despotism. The attitudes of certain public officials and sections of the police already reveal this tendency. So do legislative enactments on federal and local levels. As the country grows less certain of its manifest destiny to police the world and remold it nearer to the American dream, 
as internal pressures mount in the wake of a myriad host of unsolved domestic problems, and as white racism enlarges the contribution of its irrational mystique to the reinforcement of white power, the blacks of America will come more and more to occupy the position of the Jews under Hitler. White power is the problem of the future as it is the problem of today. It will, of course, play its traditional game of shifting the onus, at which long practice has made it quite expert. It will not, therefore, be the white racists who are unjust, but the blacks who are impatient. Not the white racists who are gluttonous, but the blacks and other non-white peoples who have acquired rising expectations. Not the whites who, in general, are white racists, but the blacks who are wrong to oppose their white racism by resorting to black, or as it may be in the case of other non-whites, yellow or brown or green racism. Not they, the whites, who, constituting 6% of the world's population, consume 40% of its resources, but the other 94% of the world, the non-white world, that is to say, who irritatingly won't make do with the remaining 60% of the world's resources. Not they, the white inhabitants of a land that has never known foreign invasion, except the one so successfully carried out by the European intruders against the North American Indians. Not they, these whites, who are to blame for their unwarranted interventions in the domestic quarrels of other peoples, but the others who are guilty of quarreling in the first place. Not they who litter the world with the shoddy artifacts of a money-mad culture, but the others who need these worthless things. Not they, these whites, who carry the leprous contagion of white racism across the face of the earth, but the others who become contaminated by it. Not they who contrive the means of destruction on a scale that defies the imagination, but the others who provoke them to do so. Not they who, as the richest country in the world, permit de degrading poverty, permits degrading poverty to flourish on its very doorstep, degrading poverty to flourish on its very doorstep. But the others who cling with insensate obduracy to their poverty, not they who pollute earth, air, and water with their pestilences, but the others who do not understand that a price has to be paid for progress. Not Hitler, but the Jews who permitted the monster to exterminate them. Not the white slavers who brought their black human cargo to the Americas, but the black slavers who sold their fellow blacks into slavery, and the happy slaves who throughout three centuries of enslavement refused to free themselves. Not they who have lynched black men and raped black women and starved and murdered black children, but the others who lust for white women and yearn for white men and where the black children are concerned are done a favor by being starved to death and otherwise murdered to save them from becoming uppity and bad niggers. Never, never they, never, never they, the white racists, 
always the others. Shift the onus, the traditional game of white power. It is not in prospect that they will abandon this profitable game in the near future. The question then for blacks is how, first of all and foremost, to survive and next to surmount this evil menace of white power.